Exploring the natural world, one podcast episode at a time. This is For What It's Earth. Hi, all, and thank you so much for joining me for another episode of For What It's Earth by me, Marissa Jacobs of the Art of Ecology. Here, nature enthusiasts, animal lovers, and eco-warriors can discover and explore so many facets of the environment that we all love and some creative ways to make a positive difference for the planet. This week, we are celebrating the start of August as Water Quality Month and examine where clean water comes from and how we might be able to use that available water. So yeah, happy August, everyone, and happy Water Quality Month. So this past month and just all all over the place, I have been doing a ton of water and wetland education. And I'm always amazed by the fact that many people don't know about some water conservation efforts or how personal actions impact wetlands and watersheds beyond the reduction of single-use plastics. So we all know that clean drinking water is important and that clean bodies of water help to provide clean water for drinking, but many are still unaware as how important plants are, especially in areas called riparian zones, which are stream banks and riverbanks, pretty much the banks along a body of water, and how aquatic and wetland plants will impact and improve water quality overall. So this riparian zone, like I said, refers to a space of land that runs along rivers and streams that help to anchor soil in place and prevent it from eroding into the water as water rushes past it. This zone also provides really, really important and vital edge habitat to animals that seek shelter yet also want quick and easy access to water or to their food sources that live in the water. Think fish, crayfish, macroinvertebrates, little water insects, things like that. So did you know here, I live in PA in Pennsylvania and the number one pollutant here in our waterways, not a chemical, not any sort of like nasty thing that you'd think of, really our number one pollutant right now is sediment, which seems like a pretty natural thing, you know, dirt exists all over the place. Seems like a natural thing that would be in our waterways, but as soil erodes and washes off of those riparian zones that don't have adequate plant or tree life with roots that act kind of like claws holding that soil in place, that stream or the riverbanks get swept away and they lose the soil and the sediment as the body of water widens. This sediment falls into the water and it might settle to the bottom. Well, that doesn't seem like a problem, right? <laughs> it is. This is a huge problem for little macroinvertebrates that use gills to breathe as the sediment can clog that up and start to suffocate them. It also blocks out sunlight for many aquatic plants, preventing them from growing and providing food and habitat. And as they, as those plants are prevented from growing, you get this lack of proper nutrient cycling in the water. And this can actually cause algal blooms that 
mess the aquatic habitat up even more than it already is. This sediment, this cloudy debris in the water also prevents aquatic predators from seeing their food. So if you are a fish that is trying to go for insects, you might not be able to see them as well. And now you have a chance of starvation. Not really something we want in our aquatic ecosystems. So overall, without those plants in that riparian zone, acting as that buffer, many plants, many animals would die and the water would move very slowly. Like I said, that nutrient cycling wouldn't be able to happen. And this all decreases the quality of the water that is available to us. So we have marshes and wetlands though that simply seem to hold water without having a really nice fast flow in the form of a stream or a river, right? We see these like muddy marshy spots and soil just sits, but erosion isn't as big of a concern. And therefore, since things aren't getting pulled along and pushed with the flow of water, the soil settles and animals are able to climb on top of it. There's not soil grains and sediment that are getting swept around and debris isn't all over in your body of water. It's all settled and it can be fairly clear. In those areas, aquatic, in those marshes, aquatic and native plants act kind of like a sponge. They soak up or uh, the fancy term is sequester pollutants through their roots and they store it inside of themselves, which is absolutely amazing. These are pretty much natural filters. Without these plants, toxins, pollutants, they can find their way into a marsh through runoff, polluting the water and killing the animals that live there. And with those plants that act as a sponge, Absorbing those pollutants, little animals like fish, tadpoles, turtles, dragonfly nymphs, damselflies, they can live in this clean, nutrient-filled water. Some of these plants that act as the filters are lily pads, sedges, cattails, ferns, wolfia, jewelweed, rushes, and reeds. We got a whole bunch along with many types of trees. Um, if you ever see a sycamore tree or a river birch, those are trees that like to live in wetter environments. They don't mind having their roots covered in water. So now we know how important these, these wetlands and riparian zones are. But unfortunately, even if we are lucky enough to live near these quote unquote abundant water resources, not everyone is that lucky. Yes, water does naturally recycle itself through the water cycle. So we have the steps of evaporation, condensation, precipitation, and continuing that little cycle. But the number of people all needing that same exact resource is exponentially increasing. As I am recording this, the Earth's population is a huge, ginormous number. 
seven billion eight hundred eighty four million four hundred thirty five thousand three hundred and twenty five. That's a humongous number. And honestly, I'm watching there's a world clock that you can a world population clock that you can watch and it changes very, very rapidly to the point that it's going up, then it goes down, then it goes up a lot, then it goes back down, then it goes up, then it goes up even more. And you can see it rising over time and it never goes down quite enough to mitigate this exponential rise in population. For much of the developing world and for parts of America, water stress and a complete lack of water is a real, real challenge. With how much water flows through ephemeral creeks, continual streams, and perennial rivers, here in at least East Coast America, you may be surprised to learn that less than 1% of all of the planet's usable water is fresh water. So here's this breakdown of the planet's water, where it is found on the globe. 97.2% of the water in this world is in the ocean. This is most of the water on the planet. Only like less than 3% is located anywhere else. That seems like a great thing. Well, we've got these oceans to dip into. Yeah, oceans are salt water. We can't really efficiently use that. So it's not available for our use. We have 2.15% is found in glaciers and other ice. And honestly, they're melting. So eh, not so helpful. We have 0.61% so less than 1% is groundwater. So things that are below the surface. We have 0.009% is a freshwater lake. That's helpful. 0.008% is found in inland seas. There are cool things called soil moisture, just water that is in the ground without being true groundwater that the little grains of soil, rocks, minerals hold on to. That is 0.005%. There is 0.001% in our atmosphere, so in the air that we're breathing here. And in rivers, so here locally, I am about five minutes away from the Delaware River, there is 0.0001% of water on this planet found in these rivers. So overall, less than 1% is in that fresh water area that we have the ability to tap into. It's estimated that by 2025, over 1.8 billion people are going to suffer from scarce water supplies and two-thirds of the entire planet's population will suffer from water stress as a direct result from overuse and from climate change. So hearing that term overuse made me a little concerned about how I personally use water. I found this really neat 
informative, and simple to use water calculator. It's called watercalculator.org. Through this calculator, I discovered that while the average person in the United States uses roughly 1,802 gallons of water per day, I only use 1,055 gallons per day. Yay, go me, right? I use less than the average person, but that is still a huge ton of water. And that's every single day. Most of my personal water consumption comes from not direct water use, things like washing dishes, doing laundry, drinking, watering my garden, but through something called virtual water. This is water that is used indirectly and consists of the water that it takes to run and power a car, power my electronics, eat the diet that I do, things that you don't automatically associate with, oh, water. My husband and I are both meat eaters, although we are both actively trying to reduce our meat consumption and participate in Meatless Mondays. Although we don't really stick to Mondays, it might vary. One week it might be a Tuesday, one might be a Thursday, but we try at least one day a week to be a completely vegetarian diet. It takes a lot of water to feed and raise animals, clean and sanitize meat, ship and process it. So to give you an idea of how much hidden water we use or this virtual water, one pound of beef requires 1,800 gallons of water to raise and care for that animal and make sure that it is clean. That 1,800 gallons of water is one pound of beef and that equaled to what the average American does in one day. That one use is just one pound of beef. This is insanity. So I included for those who are also now thinking, wow, what are the ways that I use water and how can I reduce it? That link for watercalculator.org is included in the description of this podcast. So I encourage everyone to go on, give it a try, not to discourage yourself, but to see in what areas you can improve. This watercalculator.org is also really great for breaking down your water consumption and saying, here's where you excel, here's where you're doing just fine, and here's areas that you could improve. Now, that could be my virtual water, and it'll break it down even further and say, based on the data and the usage that you inputted, you could improve specifically with your diet as compared to with where you get your energy from or how you drive your car, things like that. And it can be really helpful to come up with some ideas that maybe you haven't thought of before to reduce and conserve water. When conserving water though, nobody at all is ever going to suggest that we just starve ourselves of water. That's, that's not what we're going for here. We just want to be aware and conscientious of what we are consuming. As humans, we all need water to survive. After all, we are over 60% water ourselves. Not only do we need to stay hydrated to make sure that our body functions properly, but we also need to eat to produce food. We have clothes and producing clothes takes water. 
producing technology also takes water. So all of these things that help us to live and to function take water. So real quick, without you inputting all of your water usage into that calculator, there's some easy ways that I can list off for you now to conserve water. Again, not suggesting to starve, but just to be aware and prevent that overuse for this valuable resource. Number one, reuse leftover water from cooking. A great thing to do is to wait until it's cool and then you can water your garden with it. When you are cooking or um, boiling vegetables, heating vegetables up, now some of the nutrients from those vegetables has leached into the water and now you're giving those nutrients right back to the plants that you're growing. Number two, leave lawn clippings and leaves on the ground. This not only recycles the nutrients back into the ground as a compost, but it also helps to retain moisture similar to mulch does. Adding that mulch, undyed mulch, or compost in your garden bed can do the same thing. Number three, collect rain in a rain barrel or in some sort of harvesting buckets to use for gardening, for washing your dog, washing your car, etc. You want to, there's, there's rain coming down, you want to be able to use that and not let so much of it just go kind of to waste. Where I live right now, there's a big lawn it's kind of just grass in some areas. And so I don't really need that part of the grass to be watered so heavily. So having that rain barrel, I was going to help collect the water. It's totally fine that it's not going in that one foot by one foot circle. And then I can use that later during the middle of a week long drought during a heat wave to help add water and I don't have to run the tap for it. Number four, use a reusable water bottle. Yeah, we all know this one because we're trying to reduce plastic and that whole single use plastic thing. But aside from, you know, we don't want to have single use plastics, just the creation of plastic requires a lot of water to make it. So not only do we want to avoid the single-use plastics, but we also want to reduce our water consumption by reducing our plastics as well. If you don't drink the water throughout the day, you know, don't worry about it. Water your house plants. Number five, encourage you or your students' school to increase watershed and water conservation education in the curriculum. Again, as an educator, I see this a lot where people just don't know. People aren't trying to hurt the environment. People aren't trying to do things that can hurt others. People just don't know that what they're doing might cause a negative impact. So by increasing wetland and watershed education, you're now creating eco-stewards. It's a win-win. Number six. Only wash full loads of laundry or dishes in your dishwasher. You don't need to do two shirts a load. Do a full load, wait until you have that much stuff because the amount of water is gonna be the same that your washing machine or your dishwasher puts out, even if it's a smaller load. 
Number seven, purchase energy efficient appliances. So again, your energy consumption definitely correlates to your water conservation. So being eco-friendly and using green energy and renewable energy resources takes less water. Number eight, shorten your shower. And I'm not saying to do, you know, cut your shower in half sort of thing. If you can, go for it. But I know some people think in the shower me, I'm in there to wash my hair, do a little conditioning, do a scrub-a-dub-dub, and then I'm out. I got things to do. But I know, for example, shower thoughts, right? Some people think really well, come up with really creative ideas for their business or for work or just for tackling life's problems. So I'm not saying to not have your good shower time, but even if you shower for just a minute less, just one minute less, you are saving roughly 150 gallons per month. In the grand scheme of the thousand gallons per day, yeah, 150 per month may not seem like much, but you gotta start somewhere, right? And if that minute, two minutes, three minutes can eventually increase until, yeah, now you are used to showering for only a couple minutes, just doing what you need to, you're gonna save a ton of water. Number nine. Water your plants only when necessary. So overall, just know your plants requirements. If you have house plants, the number one cause of death for house plants is overwatering. So, you know, maybe your house plants don't need as much as you give them. And for your garden, you know, maybe it rained overnight and you didn't know. So check the soil, check your plants before you water them. Number 10. Don't use running water to thaw your food. This may sound difficult to do because a lot of us are not planning our dinner early in the morning. But if you do try to plan ahead, you can now, you know, thaw your chicken for the evening, pull that out of the freezer, stick it in the fridge, or stick it out to thaw beforehand. Yeah, you'll have to plan a little bit more, but you'll be saving many, many gallons of water. Number 11, plant natives. Going back with knowing your garden's requirements, knowing your plant's requirements, native plants are already accustomed to the region's rain or lack thereof. So they require a lot less maintenance. If here in Pennsylvania, July and August tend to be drought months where we do not get a lot of rain. It could go days to weeks without rain. And the plants that are natives, they know that this happens. They have adaptations that are specially designed for this time of year. Number 12, turn off water when you are brushing your teeth. That simple thing, that little thing, you know, you stick your toothpaste on, you put it under the faucet, turn the faucet off, and then you brush your teeth, brush, 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 and then you spit, take the water. Just doing that and not having the water running while you're doing the brush, brush, brush can save four gallons per minute. We do this twice a day. How many people are in your household? This can really add up. Number 13. 
aerate your lawn to allow water to reach the roots as opposed to having water sitting on top of the soil and risking evaporation. The plant surface roots, you know, things within that first little layer of the ground, they're not the things that are taking up water. So by allowing water to really permeate through the ground, get down nice and deep, that's going to allow your plants to utilize that water as effectively as possible, as opposed to if that water just sits there and then it evaporates, well, it goes back into the air, but your plants didn't actually use what you gave them. Number 14, eat more veggies, grains, and beans as opposed to meat. So this, this you know, talking to myself here, meat takes a lot of water to produce. So if you are meat eaters like my husband and I, it's okay. You don't have to immediately switch to being a vegetarian, but starting with saying, you know what, we're going to have meatless Monday, first Monday of the month. All right, we're gonna have meatless Monday every Monday. Okay, now we're gonna do the next step. And the next step, you can acclimate yourself and really start working towards a greener world. Number 15, eat less processed food. Packaging and the process overall of making boxed foods requires way more water than if you prepare food from scratch. So example, a bag, um, a bag of potato chips is going to take a lot of water to produce as compared to a baked potato. Number 16, this one is a great actionable way if you don't really know what else to do, but you can honestly help your local water bodies directly by participating in riparian zone plantings. Many local nature centers, watershed associations, and other environmental groups heavily rely on volunteers to keep their property, their community, the township, municipality healthy and thriving. So looking for those environmental groups in your area, you'll probably find one, two, if not seasonal volunteer work days for being eco-stewards. So for what it's worth, each person who can conserve even some gallons of water, not saying to conserve thousands here, I'm saying you gotta start where you are and then improve over time. You can even conserve five gallons of water a day, 10 gallons, 100 gallons of water a day. You can be making a huge difference and impact for people all over the globe. So with that, thank you so much for digging deeper into the natural world with the art of ecology. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please support, review, and continue to follow along to explore more of the wonderful ecosystems that we are a part of. For What It's Earth can be found on many podcast streaming platforms. For more tips and eco-inspiration, you can check out my blog at www.theartofecology.com. You can also find me on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at The Art of Ecology. And with that, I will see you next week on For What It's Earth.